I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hi, Kieran. How are you? Um, I'm fine, but you have some news. Oh, I have so much news. There's only a little bit of news that I can talk about, and it's the biggest news. Um, so we're recording this in October. We may release this after the thing that is happening happens. But I'm getting... Yeah, we have a little bit of a backlog we have set a, up We have a bit already. of a backlog, so we might... This might come out, like, the week that I get top surgery. So I'm getting top on November 1st. I'm super excited about it. I am trying to raise at least $1,000 to cover the surgery costs. Like, my copay allegedly is $340, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be more than that. And I also need to be able to eat and get all the post-op supplies. So if you want to donate to my yeeting my tits off fund... <laughs> my PayPal and Venmo is MX Darkwater and my Square Cash is Kieran with a Y instead of an A at the end. Yeah, and, and that happened. I called my doctor's office yesterday because I was like, um, something came up in my life and I may need surgery before the end of the year. Can we make it happen? And the scheduler was like, how does November 1st sound? And I'm like, three weeks from now? Yes, I can. I will make that happen. Absolutely. What do you want for Christmas? No tits. Yes, I would like to eat these off of my body. Please. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to get a uh, for for the nerds in the audience who want to know about top. I'm going to get a bilateral mastectomy and it will be masculinized and I'm going to do a nipple graft. So I will have this sort of like across the chest scar and some nipple scarring for a bit and I'm I'm super excited about it. So that's my that's my big news. I got a convinced straight friend to send you all of her her pillows for recovery. Oh yeah, I've got um so my brain twin uh had air top surgery Almost a year, almost exactly a year ago. Okay, so you got yeah. some supplies. So I've around. got I've got the mastectomy pillow coming my way. I have a bunch of pillows. I'm gonna get a bunch of pillows from M, and yeah. So I basically need like comfy shirts and food, and I don't really want to do a meal train because I have really weird dietary restrictions. I'm low FODMAP and gluten free, so like cooking is kind of a hassle, and I don't want to ask people to do it. But if if you give me money, then I can order food that I can eat. So that's that's uh, my plan. And then I'll I'm just so be like excited. resting for a month. Yay. I'm, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm so happy. Well, that news aside, we have uh, an exciting guest here. We're going to switch gears real hard yes. here. <laughs> Meg, would you um, like to introduce yourself? Sure. It was so hard to stay quiet because I was very excited. Hey guys, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Melissa. I'm Melissa Jira Grant, and I'm a, a journalist and an author. And um, I write about like sex and the law and politics, which is just a teaser for what we're going to get into. I don't know. I'm super I'm so excited. excited. I mean, this this topic sucks, but I have been dying to get into it in a lot more detail. But there's just so much happening all the time with this that it's hard to know what the entry point is. But um, Nick Kristoff has given us a little bit of a timely event. So if you haven't heard oh, of yeah. him, he's a columnist from the New York Times who's decided he's going to run for governor in Oregon. And uh, that's something that makes sense to do. That's. That's just the beginning. Yeah, the reaction I've seen on Twitter has been hilarious. Just like, God, if only I had that level of confidence. You know, Please. like I have been <laughs> I have been a newspaper opinion writer writing one opinion a week for twenty years. What should I do next? Run and for governor, clearly. The only good thing about this is that he has abandoned his newspaper column. He has officially quit the New York Times. I mean after thirty seven I'll give him points for originality. He's not leaping to Substack. <laughs> That'll be yeah. after he loses. He'll end up with yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. a consolation Substack. But like, yeah. no, it's wild. That's like quitting the Supreme Court. You know, like he, 
in any other circumstance, this would be a day of celebration. Um, I have said for years and years and years of following him, at least since like 2005, I've been following him and his work. You know, there's, there's, he's untouchable. Like New York Times opinion columnists are untouchable that way, which also makes them super useful to people who have all kinds of causes they're pushing. <laughs> so for those who don't know him and his shtick, what, what do they need to know? So there, there are so many different pieces of like the Nick Kristoff of, but the common thread <laughs> across all of it, whether he's writing about sweatshops or prisons or sex work or development or girls and women's rights is this sort of white savior complex, which you can see that also makes him very attractive to various sort of Christian groups across the spectrum from, you know, the young sort of social justice evangelicals to like people who are just much more fundamentalist and can I kind of all come together in under the umbrella of his like humanitarian intervention, particularly uh-huh. as it's aimed at the global South. And like, I think a lot of those projects, you know, it's like, we're going to go to India and educate girls. We're going to go to Cambodia and rescue sex slaves. And of course the rescuing, you know, has very little to do with their material needs and a lot more to do with the <laughs> egos of the rescuers and maybe even the Bible. Then they import that stuff back to the United States and do the same thing in low income communities and communities of color here. So Nick Kristoff has accrued like a lot of people's ire reasonably. So, and I started writing about him because of his antics in Southeast Asia, where he literally took New York times money to go buy in quotes to women out of brothels and follow them over the course of several columns and was shocked when one of them returned to sex work because his rescue didn't work. Why is that? You know, like Nick Christoph rescuing you and writing about you isn't necessarily going to take care of your needs. Who knew? Turns out someone else's paycheck does not pay your rent. Mm -mm. There's a great column or really 10 for him. And, you know, he, he was just notorious for being sort of used by these like, you know, ostensibly humanitarian groups who like had a very political message and sometimes a religious message to push. Like one of the other groups he's used a lot as a source and his platforms is international justice mission who have a terrible right, a terrible reputation with human rights groups for doing Mm -hmm. these like police raids on brothels and calling that anti-trafficking work. And, you know, he's gone along on like brothel raids with them and live tweeted them And like, I guess his angle on it is like, well, look at what good human rights work they're doing, even though they only hire Christians, not that he tells his audience that, um, (laughs) without sort of thinking about how his particular orientation towards these issues is actually not that different from theirs at all, even though he would identify probably as like a progressive or even secular. Yeah, yeah, he's not, he's not ostensibly a fundamentalist. Right. He just has them under, under his umbrella. Mm-hmm. somehow and it's always of, of the work he does yeah and it's always an expanding proposition so like you know it's not enough just to like be focused on brothels in india or you know poor kids in chicago and new york who are trading sex to survive he was part of huge and very high profile campaigns targeted at online sex work so you know going after websites like craigslist and backpage writing columns threatening the businesses that did business with them, like MasterCard and Visa, to get them to stop doing business with them. And that was successful in some ways. Backpage doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, the kind of moral entrepreneurs who campaign against these websites and against sex work more generally, like, need a new target. And now they've settled on porn. So now Nick Kristoff is essentially making the same arguments on their behalf. But now targeted at porn, which is, like, entirely legal, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also like culturally I think a lot trickier for people to get up in arms about but it is it is the, the most recent sort of turn in his in his politics and and one that's really really troubling you know especially given what's been going on in the last two years with the pandemic so many more sex workers are being pushed to work in digital spaces who may not have done that before and don't have any other options and so when sites like Pornhub or OnlyFans get targeted in this way like you're literally taking food out of people's mouths you are literally mm-hmm. taking the roofs that are over their heads. And he has never acknowledged my existence, but my question for him would be like, do you ever go back and see what happens to people after you've written about them? <laughs> uh, have you looked into that? 
Yeah, <laughs> I have. And I actually got to write about it in the New York Times um, in the mm. opinion section once. Oh, that's great. Because one of his main sources had kind of fallen apart. The, you know, the ostensible sex slaves that he rescued with her, it turned out he she had exaggerated some of their stories for the sake of fundraising, which, you know, is not that surprising or unusual. It's just that she got caught no. out. And, you know, at the time, like he had written tons of columns, like parroting her stories. And as her story sort of fell apart and she came under investigation, he, of course, distanced himself from her. But he didn't do what the public editor of the New York Times, Margaret Sullivan, at the time said he should do, which is like, explain to the public how this happened. Like, how how did you end up laundering these like fake sex slave stories through the New York Times? And he never did that. Of course not. Then he would be no. implicated in doing something wrong, and you can't have that. No. Well, he would have to acknowledge the fact that it's so, so much more complicated than the framing that he is bought into and sold. Uh, and that would require doing a whole lot of actual, like, you know, unpacking of white supremacy and colonialism. <laughs> mm-hmm. and. <laughs> Everything yeah. that makes his paycheck happen. Have to start questioning the entire foundation that he's like stood on for his entire privileged life. Yeah, it's no great loss to journalism that like he now wants to go be like the like JD Vance of Oregon. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> doing, both. Yeah, he's doing like, you know, Portland elegy or something. Like I have no idea like what but like oh that's sort of what he, his line right now is like healing these divisions and you know healing the people who are hopeless because of opioids and, and job loss and sort of chalking that up to cultural issues rather than economic issues it's very i don't know like to me like it's it's some people get kind of caught up in like the way that he has a very moralistic attitude towards sex and i think that that's absolutely true but i think the thing that that really is dangerous about him is everything for him is about the individual. Everything for him is about, you know, individual failings, like the idea that there are structural issues animating what's going on behind the inequities that he writes about, like never seems to fit on the page. And I think that's one reason that like he fits very well, even though he's nominally coming from a secular place, he fits very well with some of the, the hardline Christian groups whose work he has lifted up over the years because you know, that's, I think that that ideology is very much aligned. Well, I think that's interesting because we were talking about the theological differences between certain dominionist groups before we started recording and the one that he has aligned himself with for collaborating on a lot of this stuff is one of the groups that's much more focused on free will. And I think that that really tracks with that, like very American bootstraps mentality you you choose God and you stick to it come hell or mm-hmm. high water and it's a daily choice there's no act of God that could or any systemic protection for your faith that exists in that theological structure so that tracks yeah and yeah. like if bad things happen to you they're your fault exactly right. yeah it's God punishing you for sinning whether or not you you know, noticed that you sinned if well, something and that bad just, like, happens to you. Leads into prosperity gospel stuff. All of these things oh, yeah. feed into each other. Yeah. So, which um, organization does he do a lot of work with that we should know about? Or so, organizations, I guess. Most recently, he has been lifting up the work of this group called Exodus Cry without even directly naming them. So, uh, a couple of months back, a huge spread appeared in the New York Times Sunday review section, like full page photo, multi-page story, alleging that there was a problem of child rape on the website Pornhub. And all of the anecdotes in the story and all of the framing was lifted wholesale from this group called Exodus Cry, who have connections to various Christian dominionist sects, probably the most notable one being the International House of Prayer. And Exodus Cry or IHOP. <laughs> and, yeah. And Exodus Cry, you know, you won't see their name in his work, but you will see their staffers' names. Uh, like Layla Micklewaite, for example, quoted, she created a campaign under the aegis of Exodus Cry called Trafficking Hub that's, you know, aim is to take down Pornhub. 
And it was very much like a repeat of the stuff he had done about Backpage. Like he used his column to tell incredibly traumatic and horrifying stories about sexual violence and then pivoted from that too. And the way to solve this is to get MasterCard and Visa to stop doing business with this website. Right, so that's you know, going to solve it. There, there's no yeah, so sort of, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go, I just want to pause and just give a little bit of a, like the economics of sex work uh, yes. in 2021. For those of you who don't know, one of the things that has happened is because of the closing of Backpage and the, you know, personal sections on Craigslist, thanks to SESTA-FOSTA, we have a lot less systems of vetting available for sex workers. And so they are more dependent on, you know, older, more <laughs> rudimentary methods of finding their clients. And one of the other things that has happened is that like PayPal and Venmo and Cash App, like they are flagging anything that looks like it's sex work and like holding money's hostage and not, you know, giving payouts to the the sex workers who are, you know, being paid. And so this is this is this ongoing issue. And he's been pivotal in getting this this far. And now he's trying to really just like clean house all the way. That's like really so few options for sex workers to both, you know, make money and collect money, which are two different things on the internet, mm -hmm. right? Attracting yeah. customers and actually getting the money out of the internet, yes. which because of that kind of financial discrimination and deplatforming, you know, websites like OnlyFans and Pornhub, like provide a reliable payment service because they are a legal business. They work with these, you know, third-party credit card processors who in turn do business with big banks. But that's also like a very vulnerable place for Nick Kristoff to poke. Be like, look, your nice business is actually enabling child rape. And isn't that why OnlyFans was like, oh, we're not going to do that anymore? It was because of MasterCard putting pressure on them. So it was really interesting. It came in like two acts. So the first was Pornhub. For, like, let's Nick Kristoff went after Pornhub following like months, if not years, of activism from Exodus Cry and Layla McElwaite and, you know, like various allied anti sex work and Christian anti trafficking groups. So he kind of comes in at the end of that. And within like days of his column, MasterCard and Visa are, are stopping business with Pornhub. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't enough, you know, and, and and sex workers immediately pushed back. And there was like a pretty fierce backlash to this, I think, more than they maybe anticipated. It seemed just so egregious. It's like you're going to go after this like huge website. It's like in the top 10 most trafficked websites on the Internet consistently. It's a brand name. People know it. Porn is like much less stigmatized than prostitution. And like it's vastly populated by adults, adult consensual work. It's like easy for people to see that, but it still was a successful campaign because it was all premised on these really graphic, really horrible, traumatic stories of things that happened to teenage girls. And I talked actually, when I was doing some reporting on this for the New Republic to some women who, when they were underage had content, like revenge porn type content essentially posted on Pornhub for other people's economic benefit. And their main issue is like, we just want them to do better content moderation. We just want them to take that stuff off the site. Like we don't care if the site exists. That's like not about that. It's like, we just want better content moderation. We want them to respond to us and they don't take us seriously. Um, and that's like a really different problem mm -hmm. than like porn exists, which yes. seems to be the problem that like Exodus Cry really is about. So I think they got greedy, right? Like they, they were pretty successful with Pornhub and then they went after OnlyFans, but the OnlyFans thing completely backfired on them. OnlyFans reversed themselves like within like 24 or 48 hours of saying they were gonna stop doing, you know, explicit content because right. of the backlash. And they actually went back on their policies and they're rolling them out in a different way. Like MasterCard and Visa are still making some policy changes as a result of the Pornhub thing that could implicate OnlyFans. But like there was no Nick Kristoff column about the OnlyFans thing. There were no like vast allegations of <laughs> child rape on OnlyFans. And, you know, at the time actually that that happened, that, you know, those anti-porn campaigns led by Christian anti-trafficking groups pushed on OnlyFans after Pornhub, Kristoff was actually like on leave 
contemplating his run for governor <laughs> in Oregon. He wasn't writing. So like, I really do wonder, <laughs> like, if he were there, would he have written the column? And that would have gone down right. differently. Like, there's an enormous amount of power that someone like that wields. They can very helpfully launder what pretty fundamentalist groups are pushing. Mm-hmm. Even as there has been reporting, not just by myself, but also by Sam Cole at Motherboard. Uh, there's been great reporting at the Daily Beast as well, like about the Christian fundamentalist backdrop that is animating this. And and it's not to say it's coming from like a uh, Christian anti-sex place. Like that's certainly part of it. But the thing that I keep hitting on and the thing that is really alarming to me, and maybe the reason we're talking about this is the, there, there's a worldview here. There's a political worldview here. These groups are looking for sort of issues through which they can assert their Christian values in law, policy, and government. That is what this is yep. about. Look at yep. the power that we can flex. And and that and sex workers have always been a very vulnerable target for them. And sex work, you know, up to this point they've really actually like been winning. Like I think SESTA-FOSTA was a huge turning point where now sex workers are actually more visible in media are getting listened to more politically, have allies in Congress in a way that they haven't before. And so they've been sort of on the back foot, these like Christian anti-trafficking groups that really like aren't even anti-trafficking groups. They're just anti-sex work groups. So someone like Nick Kristoff is like super useful to those people because then he's not going to ask like, well, wait a minute. Why are you guys it. exactly like he doesn't? Yep. He conveniently leaves off the page all of their anti-gay stuff, all of their anti-abortion stuff, all of their anti-trans right. stuff. You know, all of the the sort of like deeply patriarchal ways that these groups are organized. For somebody who's like a champion of women's rights, like just those questions never come up. I have many questions about someone who's a champion for women's rights who is actively trying to like harm sex workers. Yeah. Like I have I have many, <laughs> many questions and doubts. There's that too. <laughs> yeah. Well it's it's so interesting because there's there's all these layers to the history of like anti porn organizing. And you have you go back to like Andrea Dworkin and the the feminist, second wave feminist anti porn movement, and it was all about like, well, this is demeaning to women. And the Christian fundamentalist stuff is is kind of it's not quite the same tone. It's almost a little bit more paternalistic, mm-hmm. but it is still that that same like sex is precious. Mm-hmm. Therefore, <laughs> you know, sex is modify- a sacred act that can right. only be performed by a cis man and a cis woman in missionary in the dark. In which a baby comes out. For children, yeah. <laughs> no, that's the Catholics, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, but, I was raised Catholic. I sometimes... This is Catholic failing is you, like, roll over any of the distinctions and other kinds of Christianity because you're just, like, the center of the universe. I, like, failed a world religion test in middle school because I said the three world religions were Judaism, <laughs> Islam, and Catholicism. And when I was marked wrong, I was Oops. like, how am I wrong? So deep is the Catholic. <laughs> so deep is the Catholic upbringing. Yeah. Well. Yes. So, so yeah. This is. I mean. This is kind of like like the trickle down effect of all the the evolving theology is really fascinating to me personally. And sorry if I'm being a nerd here, but like you have the the Catholic perspective on the everything pro life goes back to their belief about like what the body is and what marriage is and mm-hmm. what sex is. There's a theological foundation for that that does not exist in the evangelical community. The evangelical community is much more arbitrary. And so their definition of what sex is for is a little bit more broad. This is you can have a lot more pleasure available because it's not defined as being for procreation only. The the you know, Protestant belief about sex is that it is for pleasure as well. But which is just ridiculous, the whole distinction, all, all of it's nonsense. But um, <laughs> but when it comes into play with the their approach to sex work, sex trafficking, and that those concepts, like it's always about we have to protect white virgins yes. from corruption. And so we've talked about this in our episode about the origins of the Salvation Army, and you know that kind of like cultivating a a sting where you are soliciting 
sex work from someone who may not be participating in that already. (laughs) And you're setting up a situation that you believe already exists in order to prove that the situation already exists is kind of this like inherent problem in the, the Christian activism around um, sex trafficking. So that's what you have with like situation with the organizations like international justice mission is notorious for working with cops to set up stings that are, you know, none of, maybe none of the unsafe conditions that they were observing in the sting would have happened if they hadn't set up the sting. Yeah. Right. You are making this a self-fulfilling prop- prophecy. Like you, yeah. you set this up and I feel like no one should take that seriously because it was a situation that was artificially created to prove that a situation exists, but we don't ever hear. Well, that side of the story isn't as publicly broadcasted as the look at us white people saving these poor women from themselves. I was going to say, it's kind of metastasizing too. Like the, I think an international justice mission buttoned up a little bit because of critique. Um, they also were getting like, lots of US government funding. And I wonder if there mm-hmm. was sort of some pressure to sort of like look more legit. But there are many people who came in after them to sort of pick up the reins. And it's like Mormon groups now who are like really aggressively doing those like, literally, like, they approach it like special ops, like the guys are mm-hmm. like, we're going to train each other to be like really macho and like take down these traffickers. But we are also going to pose as pedophiles who want to have children brought to us for sex and then when the local authorities come in and like arrest us like we can't break character so like we have to like get thrown on the ground too and all these elaborate role plays like the um sociologist elizabeth bernstein has written a ton about this sort of like how anti-trafficking for various christian groups allows them to get really close to sex in a way Mm-hmm. In this like cons- mm-hmm. very like kind of play acting way, like you know, I'm thinking of like kind of voluntourism, like you know, Christian college kids going Y'all, to like yeah. the red light is right here. Like you could just right. you could just do real <laughs> role was, play. It's fine. That yeah. was literally my thought. Like you can just you you just like that's that's a kink. You can just you could do that, do. right? But no, but then that doesn't give you the like ego boost of being like right. the person who came in and yeah. you know, saved the lives of children who you really endangered by having them right. brought to your fake pedophile you took party. took them from their families to come to this scary situation and do you feel good about yourself somehow? It's terrifying. Do you, do you want to pay for their therapy? No? Right. Okay, then get out. Right. <laughs> so... It's and it's interesting that like these groups are able to have such uh, sway on a larger secular level because there's already this existing cultural mythology in the United States about sex trafficking right. that exists that has been amplified from like the '90s on, and we have the uh, if anyone it wants to hear more about this, the you're wrong about has a couple good episodes about this um where you there's like all the signs in the airport bathrooms there's like see something say something Mm -hmm. and and the situations that they are describing or thinking about don't actually exist that's not what trafficking looks like and so there's already this misconception about what it is they're creating false situations to make it look like what they're imagining it is and then you know they're patting themselves on the back for having saved the day when they're they're endangering people in the process. I mean, that's the thing, like, even when they're not creating these sort of false stings, which like they do sometimes, but like, you know, every time they impersonate a sex worker for the purposes of, you know, arresting a customer and then calling him a sex trafficker, which these stings do, like sometimes when you Mm -hmm. see these stings announced as like X amount of traffickers arrested, they just meet Mm -hmm. guys who answered an ad thinking they were hiring an adult woman for sex. Right. But then that means that like sex work becomes that much more dangerous because now you've raised this fear that like at any time on the other end of the line, that could be a cop. And for men who are involved in those transactions, like they're not necessarily going to want to cooperate with people's screening methods. They're not going to want to stay on the phone and, you know, actually negotiate. They're going to be like incredibly cagey and 
you're creating a situation also where like sex workers are sort of treated as like adjuncts to sex trafficking just by existing, which is, I mean, that is what's going on with the Pornhub stuff too, right? They're basically trying to say like all of these porn performers, like that might not be trafficking, but because we think trafficking might be happening on this website, therefore the entire thing is a legitimate target. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They completely erase like, the agency of the adults who are doing this work and like victimizing them. Part of it too is like they're, they're trying to not so much control the sexuality of sex workers, but I think there's an element of it where it's about sort of like controlling sexual values within their own communities too. So Mm -hmm. you hear a lot, um, this one group called Shared Hope International has a men's adjunct group called like the Defenders or something like that. <laughs> and they they ask them to take like a pledge to like not consume porn. And so there's a lot of like purity culture stuff going on mm-hmm. too in, in these groups, like men sort of being asked like step up and be like good men and pledge not to look at porn and defend women and take part in these fake things. It's easier to control young, earnest Christian believer sex drives and what they consume if you are telling them that all porn is non-consensual and violent um, behind the scenes, which is not, it can be the case, but it's not really necessarily the case. And it's easier to keep them off of it if you are just, you know, framing it as something that's addictive and something that is like harming people that you care about. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of just earnest true believers who don't know better who are falling for the the messages that they're taught. I just, I'm thinking about like so many of my, my peers who would, you know, be like my partner watches porn. Therefore my partner is addicted to porn because that's what was taught. And so there's, there's very little nuance. And so once you experience anything in that world, you jump to the worst possible conclusion because that's all you've been told about it because you haven't been, you know, given an actual gradient spectrum of, of what is going on on the other side. It's really scary because it, the messages get like reinforced within their community, their immediate community. Like anytime you look at porn, that person could be trafficked. Therefore Mm -hmm. you're contributing to this. And the only way to know that you're not contributing to it is to just not consume those, which is like, it's, and then it's reinforced outside, right? Because there's this whole anti-trafficking panic that sort of exists outside this like strict Christian bubble. That's like very social justice oriented, even Mm -hmm. for some people, right? That like, is seen as like a bipartisan issue is not seen as something that's just the domain of sort of, you know, the right or the Republican party or Christian youth groups, like everybody can agree that trafficking is bad. Right. And so like you're getting those messages inside and outside and you're not hearing very much about like, actually this is how the sex industry works. Right. You know, And, and it's very powerful. Like I think, you know, one of the scariest things this past year, like, is watching how this anti-trafficking panic is merging with elements of the far right. And, you know, that's like why I started oh, writing yeah, watching about- watching QAnon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why I started writing about QAnon was, was through that lens. And that Mormon anti-trafficking group I was talking about before, they're called Operation Underground Railroad, which is a whole other thing mm. for a group of white Mormons to call yep. themselves mm-hmm. Operation Underground Railroad. They're very close with Glenn Beck. He's a very powerful fundraiser for them. Anna Merlin has been doing some incredible reporting on them at Vice, which I highly recommend, along with Tim Martian. They are like flirting with QAnon openly and their social media. They are like pushing QAnon like messages about what trafficking is. Like, I don't think QAnon is like that extraordinary in that regard. Their, their sexual politics actually are pretty close to the sexual politics of the anti-trafficking world. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and the the dangers of this you know, it looks like it's nonpartisan. It looks like it's a human rights issue. And you you get people who are just unstable enough to, pull, you know, with Pizzagate, you had the guy from North Carolina who drove up and tried to shoot up 
you know, Comet Ping Pong. And then you had the guy in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He was killing masseuses. Like, yep. there's this there's this vigilante style activism that is encouraged by these groups that just feeds into, you know, the, all of the conspiracy theories around this. Yeah. There's a whole side of QAnon inflected sex trafficking panic that has not gotten as much attention as those, like which those cases absolutely deserve that level of attention and scrutiny. That's not what I'm saying, but there's a Mm -hmm. bunch of cases that are a lot more complicated and are probably more about family violence Mm-hmm. Um, at, than anything, but like there are half a dozen cases that um, Will Sumner was tracking at Daily Beast over the last two years of like custody battles where QAnon ended up sort of animating one of the parents to kidnap the children from the other, um, including one where like a father was like live streaming himself kidnapping his children and talking about like Hillary Clinton and eating babies, and that's why he was saving them. Cute. Uh, and, and women sometimes are also kidnapping children to, you know, save them from sex traffickers who don't exist. There's some overlaps also with the sovereign citizen movement if folks are oh, familiar yeah. with that and sort of them being like, well, we exist in this alternate reality of the legal <laughs> world right. where like all of our actions are just, our vigilantism is not a, a that brings law. us back to Oregon. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> oh my God. No, and it's, the, the, it, there's absolutely nothing in the anti-trafficking narrative that has been set over the last 20 years that precludes people from taking that kind of response. You have been told that the appropriate response to this is to trick people to violently enter places where you're not allowed and to rescue people against their will. How could it not, not end forget, up this way? And let's not forget that like America's history of lynching yes. is tied to this exact same kind of panic. Yeah. White girls. Let's just protect the white girls and kill everybody. Yeah. So, okay. So Exodus cry is connected to IHOP. You want to talk a little bit more about, Exodus Cry and what they do specifically? Yeah, they they came on my radar maybe sometime in the last five years um, because they frankly just seemed really out there. Like there's a lot of of Christian right anti-trafficking groups that, I mean, there's, there's more I think than anybody could even keep track of because there's some that are like, you know, two women in a Facebook page. Right. And then mm-hmm. there are some that are like getting, you know, law enforcement partnerships going with like the FBI. It's across the board. The Exodus cry I got on my radar because they both seemed like super out there in their rhetoric, and yet they had an ally in Congress at the time. It was Representative Randy Hulkgren, who I don't think is even in Congress anymore. But they were also um, kind of like creating propaganda. You know, they were creating these movies that were like anti-hookup culture movies that were like getting on Netflix, like as like documentaries. Oh my god! And they got like Randy Hulkgren when he was a member of Congress, like screen one of these. And so they were coming in through this like faux secular backdoor of like teens these days and the hookups and the spring breaks and the this and the that and by trafficking. Like it was really kind of at the time, this was like pre me too, but like kind of getting there, like playing on this idea of just like, what's going on with consent? Like what is going on and how we're talking about sex? Like, and they could like exploit that and sort of bring people to their incredibly fundamentalist vision of it. So the people who started Exodus Cry come out of International House of Prayer, Kansas City. One of them, Benjamin Nolot, like was there in 2007 as I guess their title is and I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, an, like an intercessory missionary, like intercession, intercessory mm-hmm. missionary. Yes. Yep, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he said that he had a dream uh, that the, the Lord put on his heart, which I, now I feel like I'm recognizing all these like Christian buzzword phrases whenever I see them, mm-hmm. like put it on I his heart or any group that's like got hope in the name. I'm like, yep. let's, let's see what you're all about. There's a whole lexicon. Oh, we should yeah. just make it. We should just make a dictionary. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Like he basically felt like called to do this, of course. And when he mentioned this in a prayer meeting, a, a woman allegedly came up to him and said that she had a dream where she was forced into a brothel and she began to see babies that she would be forced to abort as a result of this lifestyle, as he put it. Uh-huh. And so IHOP expanded into looking at human trafficking as well as abortion as an issue. 
Um, about five years after that, Layla Micklewaite, who runs the anti-Pornhub work today for Exodus Cry, joins IHOP KC. She was there for a couple of years. Um, she confirmed to me that she was there. Nollet confirmed to me that she was there. Um, and I think that she was kind of a bridge figure for them in sort of like taking this approach to sexual ethics, social justice, anti-trafficking, that's all rooted in like, you know, we're not just doing this because like, we want to like save women. Like we're here to save the country. Mm -hmm. We're here to like assert that like our values are the correct values. And like, we found this issue that like everyone can agree on. So it's like a really great issue through which to sort of launder your larger political agenda. And Layla is like young, well, young-ish, I don't know. I mean, she she like is very like influencer-like in her presentation on social media. She's very social media heavy in like building a community of, I mean, I see people who, you know, respond to her who like might just be like young women who are like porn freaks me out. And when you tell me that there's trafficking happening, like I'm all in. There's also some far-right figures, including far-right women figures who've, who've jumped on her bandwagon claims to have gotten like a million signatures on an anti-porn hub petition. (laughs) She does a lot of media. Like she has a very different presentation than say IHOP. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, she gets access to spaces that IHOP won't get access to. She's the one that Nick Kristoff quotes. Um, She's the one who goes on the BBC. She's the one who, you know, is the face of this campaign. And I, to me, I don't just see a chain of people having dreams and visions I, you know, this to me seems like a a political project that was created to mainstream something that's actually quite extreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those, this is a, the charismatic subset of, you know, the dominionist movement and that kind of rhetoric of God gave me a word, God gave me a vision. I'm going to interpret it this way because this means this, like, those are considered spiritual gifts and you're not really going to question them because if this person has a track record of leadership and respect in the community, then then what they say in terms of like these supernatural experiences that they've had that are, you know, God communicating directly to them and that community, like it's not going to be challenged. Right. If you challenge it, you're challenging what God said and that's right. terrible. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's all because, because if you challenge it, you're challenging that person's actual salvation because of the priesthood of the believer stuff, like the theological tr- like trickle down um, to enable someone to have that much power to say, like, I, I am doing God's will with this political agenda is just, it's immense. It's really powerful, like, I think, in drawing new people, perhaps, to themselves mm-hmm. as well. So, like, you know, one of the things that Exodus Cry does is they charge, like, $2,300 for, like, weekends, come learn to be an anti-trafficking warrior type oh, trainings, retreats, religious retreats. You know, they also run these, like, rescue groups that are essentially, like, sending women to strip clubs with roses and telling strippers that God loves them. Oh, my but, God. I oh. forgot about that. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're in, they're involved in that too. I mean, that's a whole thing. We that's a, that's whole, a whole thing. thing. That's, no, that's a whole you, thing. You know, Christian ladies hanging out at strip clubs to tell strippers that God loves them is like a subculture at this point. And, and I think thing. it it reliably connects some women, I think, to these groups who might not otherwise find much in them. Right. But they're just like, oh, but I'm actually helping women. Like, this is like a really mm. practical thing. I'm not praying in front of an abortion clinic. That would be distasteful. Right. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to a strip club with a rose. With a rose and, and, a, and a Bible. So, yeah, like it is. For a while, I think the anti trafficking groups, the religious ones that I paid attention to, I mostly paid attention to ones that I thought were getting like US government funding to do this work, like International Justice mm-hmm. Mission. But I think, because I was like, well, that's. That's like a real church and state issue right there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, like that, that's, that's more obvious. Yeah. 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 But I think what's going on now in this iteration, because we're the reason I keep saying 20 years is like in 2000, Bill Clinton signed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which sort of signals the beginning of this era of the anti trafficking movement. Though, of course, it has roots back in like the late, you know, 1890s, 1900s and the white slavery panic. But 
this iteration of it that sort of coincides with the war on terror where like George W. Bush as president is saying that like trafficking is like a national security issue. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, this war on trafficking, war on terror, war on drugs, like that kind of mentality is very of this moment of this, these last 20 years. And where we are at in it now is like, it's a, it's these kinds of groups like Exodus cry who are like not necessarily interested in like passing legislation you know, they want to go after these companies directly. They want to build social movements in order mm. to do that. I think maybe that's actually more important to them to build the social movement than to yeah. win. Yeah, there's a whole, like, so <laughs> when I was in Team Pact and went to Worldview Camps, there there's a whole, like, and we were kind of talking about this before with the seven spheres. Like, there's a whole way of organizing on the right that involves, like, it's not just legislation. You have to win the hearts and minds. You have to win the culture. You have to win the media. So when uh, Exodus Cry makes movies that go on Netflix, when they have a good social media presence, when they can seem reasonable to the broader culture, that's all part of the plan to eventually get legislation passed and eventually like you know have their dominionist heaven of taking over the country for christ but it's very much like a strategic point that people are aware of they're building power yes yeah so there's there's this i mean i can't prove this but i also firmly believe that this is what happened you had around the same time as um antonio gramsci's prison notebooks were translated into English, which took a very long time. One of his conversations in those notebooks is like, why is communism not taking hold in Western Europe? And the, you know, you can't, it's, it's harder to win the hearts and minds of people for a mass movement like that when they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of broke down like ways to influence culture in the kind of like these soft power methods. And he described seven different like areas of culture that you could have influence in. And like if you took on all of them successfully, you would change culture. And around that same time, as this gets translated into English, you have people like Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ and Francis Schaefer and a couple others Um I think the IHOP folks were were another one of these who independently all said that they had visions from God of like seven mountains in culture or seven spheres that of culture. It was the same theory, just recycled in terms of like how to make America a Christian nation again, ostensibly, because it's always been a Christian nation, right? Right. Um, it was founded. It was founded to be a Christian nation. Thanks, Michael Ferris. Right. <laughs> so they're so they're taking they're they're taking this Marxist theory for culture change and they're applying it to their proselytizing and their dominionism, excuse me, their Christian dominionism. So you have like, you have, if y'all remember Vision Forum and uh, Doug Phillips work, like he had, they were doing books and toys and films and like a film camp and like you had the worldview academies and you had the debate teams and people going to you had the schools and the colleges and the newspapers and the magazines all of these patrick henry college existing the way it does and the the priorities of the majors that they choose for their students like all of these go back to the seven spheres theory and so watching them take on trafficking with this soft power method is just straight out of that same playbook. They're also, they're really adapting things that I recognize from like anti-sex ed and anti-LGBT campaigning that mm. eventually ended up targeting public schools um, and turning it towards this. So like one of the things that I love doing in my investigative reporting is like searching things on Google, you know, that aren't like linked on the web that people have uploaded to their various servers that they probably circulated internally as documents didn't mean for people to see it. So like searching for particular keywords on like only PDFs or PowerPoint files. And like, I started finding like all of these like student presentations on sex trafficking. Like it's sort of, it. so many of them that I have found over the years, it feels like this has just become like a thing now 
in like middle school and high school. Like this is like an issue that kids are talking about. Um, when I've talked to people who do human rights law or any kind of like women's rights work, like at the college level, like students coming in in their first year are often saying the reason they're drawn to that is because of sex trafficking. So like, right. this was not how things were when I was in school. Like this issue did not exist in this way. It was created as a sphere of concern that is so far removed from like the original legal debates about what it was or even the realities of what sex trafficking looks like. So it is its own sort of cultural product right now. And one of the reasons that I think it's in the schools is because they're using it as a way to also like essentially flex power over young people. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see mandatory sex trafficking trainings in schools where, you know, students and teachers are taught to like recognize the signs of trafficking. Oh my God. (laughs) Because the signs of trafficking are so broad, you know, they're everything from like seems depressed or anxious, radically started changing how they dress, cutting. You um, heard of puberty that happen when you're a teenager. Right. And I think it's just another way because it is sort of like, well, everyone is against this, right? Like you can't be against like teen sex generally in the same way. It's not as powerful across the political spectrum to just be like, kids shouldn't be having sex. Now it's like, well, I'm concerned about these students because like maybe they have a pimp. And it's also incredibly racialized. Yeah. We were talking about the the lexicon of phrases that are like these, these trigger words or these buzzwords that are used in these communities. And I, I, I've thought about this for so many years and I don't really have a good term for the ones, but like the, what I was calling it for a long time was these stop think phrases where you don't analyze what is being said because the phrase is so like ingrained into your worldview. So when you say sex trafficking, you assume, you know, what is being talked about and you don't question it. And so I think that's one of the things that it happens when you introduce it so young, Mm -hmm. that concept uh, if it's just part of the atmosphere, then you never like look at it critically. Yeah. There's like role plays that I have found that like they're doing in middle schools and high schools to like teach kids to avoid traffickers. And like the insidious thing I think is sexual violence is actually a problem, right? Like young people are dealing with partner violence. That's probably not being identified or taken seriously. They don't feel like they have support around it. And what are the adults around them telling them the problem is? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, stranger like, danger. What, it's just stranger always, danger again. Yeah. What but always bothers me is that in in most of these conversations, people are talking about like, oh, like don't run at night because someone will leap out of the bushes and sexually assault you. And what they're missing is that most of the time, people who are sexually assaulted are assaulted by someone they know someone they see often, a family member, their dad, their grandpa, their uncle, their aunt, their mom, like, and no one is taught to look for that sign. No one is taught to look for parental abuse or familial abuse. They're only taught to look for strangers in dark alleys, which is like, not fucking how it works. Like occasionally. But your kids are so well behaved as seen as normal. Right. Right. (laughs) or strangers at the mall like i cannot tell you this trope of like traffickers are hanging out at the mall ready to steal your children and like the reality is is the people who are most vulnerable to trafficking are people who are already selling sex teens even who are like you know let's talk about things people don't want this community of anti-trafficking groups don't want to talk about like queer and trans kids who Mm -hmm. are thrown out or run away this is a survival strategy that goes back decades and decades if not hundreds of years as a young person and like you know you might even be in a situation where like you're you're feeling like nobody has control of you you're not being abused it's not great but like you're reasonably in control of your money and what you're doing and you are a target for somebody who wants to exploit Mm -hmm. you because you're a young person they know that you know who are you going to go to without incriminating yourself or being disbelieved so it's it's not like random groups of girls at the mall who like mom you know wasn't following their location on their phone every second and it's just it feels like a kind of sexual surveillance regime that's Mm -hmm. given this like sheen of respectability because it's no 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 this is a human rights issue because it's not just about like protecting your teenage daughter 
it's also about like liberating children in India. Like it's such right. a gigantic, yeah. huge thing that like you can tell yourself that like it's totally reasonable to monitor your children's every move because there's this vast international sex trafficking operation that could ensnare them at any time. And like, how is that also not just like QAnon at a certain I point? I feel like yeah. this is a great point to end on because I, it's just, we're coming full circle on all of this. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> yeah. This is, but, this is the tip of the iceberg really. Yeah. Know the signs when you hear people talking about anti-trafficking, like, these are things have to look questions. For. Yeah. yeah. Like, I feel like I need to say before we, we finish, like there are groups who are doing legitimate anti-trafficking work. And if people want to know about that work, like a great place to start is the Freedom Network, which is the largest network of U.S. Um, anti-trafficking service providers. So people who are actually like, doing something materially and meaningfully for people who need help and want help. Um, and they're not collaborating with the cops? No, not. I mean, well, some of them do work with law enforcement. There's a whole set of like visa issues that sometimes people have if they're undocumented that like, right, requires right. police yeah. collaboration because that's how our laws are written. You can only get a visa if you work with cops. Long, long story. But yes, mm -hmm. there are people who are like not there with like stealth motives to like kidnap your teenage daughter and put her in like a Bible retraining camp and call it sex trafficking. They haven't, they haven't gone to a training camp where they learn how to be macho men and get their egos stroked. And like, that's all that matters. Nope. No, they're actually like social workers and stuff. So yeah, like Amazing. They, there are real people who are trying to do stuff about this. And like, these groups are very dangerous for them. You mm -hmm. know, it discredits what they do. It yeah. makes people distrust what they do and the groups like these macho guys or these like ladies going to strip clubs handing out roses um are doing actual harm so because yeah, if you are being trafficked if you are in danger you if most of the people who are approaching you or interacting with you to try to help you are going to have you know put you in a situation where you're required to convert and be part of their, you know, Weird snitch cult. system. Yeah. It <laughs> uh, doesn't feel great. You yeah, don't want to do that. It's another form of power and control that's being mm -hmm. exercised yeah. over you. And you recognize that because you know what that looks like. Right. And I think that, like, yeah, I don't want that to get to get lost. Mm-hmm. And at the and at the same time, like these groups aren't pushing that stuff because they just care so much about young people and they got swept up in Jesus. There is a larger political project here. I cannot underline that enough. And it's not enough to push back on these groups saying like, well, sex workers have agency even, which is super important to say. But it's more like, yeah. fuck your political project. Yes. You are not actually going to turn us into a Christian nation by like waging war on Pornhub. Like we refuse to go down that road. That's what you're <laughs> that asking not, us to do. That is not the hill that we're going to die on. No. We will die on it in a different way, but yes. not for not not the way that they want us to do. That's right. <laughs> and fuck Nick Kristoff. Yes. And fuck Nick Kristoff in, in total. All, so, all important. <laughs> Melissa, where can our listeners find you and support your work? Oh my gosh, that's a really nice question. So I'm on Twitter way too much, especially for somebody who's supposed to be writing a book. Um, my <laughs> That's where you write the book, though, right? I, basically. Um, I think that's how writing a book goes. Yeah, um, my Twitter is at Melissa Gira, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-G-I-R-A. -S -S I'm a staff writer at The New Republic, and I'm currently on leave from there. I'll be back in February writing about all of these delightful things. And you already have a book out. I do. I have a book called Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work. It is going to turn like eight years old soon nice. um it has stayed in print and has been translated into like six or seven languages at this point so if you know someone who wants to read that book in spanish and german and korean we got you amazing it's so yeah cool. it's a very quick primer on sort of like how like if you're looking for a way to answer some of like the worst debates around sex work that people get sucked into and distracted by this is the book for you it will like help you get out of those conversations and refocus them on like how to actually help sex workers. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us and unpacking all of this. I'm so glad we were able to make this, this happen. Was so good. It was a delightful, horrific conversation. I yes. can have it with better people. <laughs>
So thank that, you. That is our new tagline. <laughs> Delightful, I mean, horrific conversations. Yeah, we we try we talk about dark things, but we try to at least make it fun. It was very fun. Thank you guys. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening. 